Conversations about the sounds of speech. Uh, I'm Eric Armstrong, and with me today is Philip Thompson. Hi there, Eric. Hi. How are you doing? Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm a little bit phlegmy. Uh, it's mm. tree pollen season, apparently. Oh. And so I've been suffering in all sorts of entertaining ways. Oh, I feel sorry for you. I, I'm actually. I feel like I'm in good voice today. Oh, how lovely. Um, so today is, as you put it, cleanup duty. We're yeah. going around the chart looking for consonants that have been orphaned and abandoned. <laughs> um, in fact, not just by us, uh, but by the chart itself, really. And what... Okay, so we, we looked at the pulmonics, right? We went yeah. through every pulmonic in our last consonant one, which was two episodes ago. Every pulmonic on the chart. Yes, and we're left with a bunch of, well, other symbols is one area of the chart that we're going to look at, and we're going yeah. to whiz through also the non-pulmonic. So l- let's just talk about this yeah. other symbols area for a second, because these are pulmonic, yeah. aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's really a sort of typographical or publishing concern uh, that sometimes these other symbols really would deserve their own row and their own column on the chart, making the chart itself unwieldy and underpopulated. So they just took a handful of other things and said, instead of expanding the chart, let's keep the chart tight and put these in a separate area. Right. But they are, in conception, identical to the other pulmonic sounds with a place of articulation and a manner of articulation, a voicing or unvoicing state. So they're the same. And, in fact, the Wikipedia page tries to shove several new things onto the chart and, and adds uh, epigl- an epiglottal row uh, and sort of takes some of the orphans and tries to insert them into the chart. Uh, Are you looking at that right now? I am. Mm, so okay. they've added a lateral flap row, and they've added an epiglottal column. Right. Uh, and then we've kept the consonants, but they've added co-articulated. So they've kept only those co-articulated consonants, which would have to involve two rows, Yes, columns, two columns. Two columns, yes. Uh, because there'd be two places of articulation. Right, and the challenge is that some of these co-articulations are actually at different ends of the mouth. Exactly. Right. So labiovelar, front and back at the same time, and, and that how do you really represent screws that up chart? your chart, maybe make it wrap around in a circular <laughs> fashion so that labial and velar <clears throat> meet. That's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> uh, I will imagine that. Uh, so... Let's uh, actually just start through some of those other symbols as they're represented on the chart. <clears throat> Pardon me, there's that phlegm I warned us of. Uh, however, I'm looking at the Wikipedia chart, which may be slightly different. So if you've got a chart in front of you... Well, let me, let me read us through. So uh, the first symbol we encounter in the other symbols area is the voiceless labial velar fricative which is symbolized with an upside-down W. At this Uh, point, by the way, in class, some of my very clever students say, wait a minute, 
how do you make a labiovelar sound? How do you get your lips to your velum? Uh, which is great that they're thinking that far ahead. At which point I'm able to say, well, no, it's not labiovelar. It's labial velar. Mm. Both labial articulation and velar articulation. It is a bilabial thing. Mm -hmm. You're going to be rounding both lips. Uh, I can't imagine someone doing it with only their lower lip or their upper lip. No. It, it's interesting, by the way, that on the IPA chart on the Wikipedia page, and I don't know who's responsible for this, uh, it's a, Wikipedia has given power to this person's point of view, I think. Mm. Uh, it describes it as a voiceless, labialized velar approximant. Interesting. Uh, or you, I suppose you could say a velarized labial approximant uh, or bilabial approximant. It's, it's a question of which one of these two articulations you think is dominant. Uh, and I've had this conversation with Dudley Knight quite a bit because he comes by this sound naturally in his speech. And he very much feels it's a labial more than a velar sound. But in his so own do, use... So do I. <laughs> yeah. I, and because it's new to me... I didn't really have it growing up. I only really was able to get my head around it when I added the velar component. I was trying to do it entirely labially, and it was confusing to me. So for me, it required adding the second element to sort of get my brain and my mouth around it. So I suppose we should talk a little bit more about what those two parts are doing. So sh shall we just make the noise first yeah. so that people know... What we're talking about. Yes, that's good. So uh, I'll do it in the normal way. Hwa, ah, hwa, ah. <laughs> and we chuckle because these sounds almost never happen at the ends of sounds, of syllables. Of, they are almost always initial or intervocalic. Actually, I, I made a recording for my students to transcribe. It was their first transcription, so I was trying to be very, very precise about my articulation to make everything unambiguous. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I said, it was O for Amuse of Fire, and I pronounced it O for Amuse of Fire. I was <clears throat> so excessive in my lip rounding that I devoiced it at the end uh, and made O. None of my students actually transcribed it that way because they didn't have the symbol yet. Uh, but it is possible. Sounds sounds like an oafish behavior. <laughs> it is. So we already covered the bilabial fricative in our, our fricative row. And uh, it's very similar, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, um, so the difference is that there's sort of an ooey kind of quality to it as well, isn't mm -hmm. there? Uh, so that the back of the tongue is up near the velum. So what makes something ooey? Uh, it's if it has a gooseish sort of activity, that it's uh, the way you would articulate a close back rounded vowel, ooh, which is sort of at the limit of the vowel space uh, before we start to get into turbulence. And so, if I continued, ooh, until I start to feel, maybe both at my lips and at my velum some turbulence. Wuh, 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 wuh. Certainly if I take it far enough, I'm creating friction and I'm getting wuh, wuh. and if I devoice that, I get wuh, wuh, wuh. And so that's the difference between the voiced and the voiceless of this 
kind of pair, the voiceless W, if you want to call it that way, mm-hmm. is a fricative. Yes. Whereas the v- the voiced sound, the W, if you will, is an approximant. It doesn't have, it shouldn't have, uh, if we're following the recipe of the IPA, it shouldn't have friction in it. So and it's it's sort of a very tight ooh yeah. as opposed to uh, which has got some turbulence. It's tight enough that we get friction. Yeah. I do think there are some people who sort of make a combination of this lip uh, fricative and a velar fricative. So they're essentially doing what the IPA uses the symbol X to represent a sound. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're lip rounding at the same time as doing that. And so they'll say something like when yeah. uh, rather than when. It, um, and in that case, the velar component is so prominent, that's not really what we're describing in the wild. Yeah. People who use that sound, for the most part, are saying, wh, wh. Now, I think we might have talked about this when we talked about wh way back in the day. Yes, I think so. So uh, we'll, we'll leave that. There's a, we could spend a, a whole episode talking about these two sounds, but I think we might have covered them. I, I have noticed... Uh, uh, a pronunciation that I think is unusual, and it, I think it's this um, sound, is a pronunciation of words like horror and horrible, where people pronounce it horrible or horror, and they that th- I think they're thinking of a kind of sound, but it's it's not really a, it's an H that they're exaggerating an H, well, and so they're actually slipping into that. X like velar fricative. You know, there are two sounds and in, in two words that pop to mind in, in English uh, where the WH spelling is pronounced, and those are whore and who. Uh, right. They're H sounds that are moving into a rounded vowel. And historically, they were pronounced and spelled with an H. But in some dialects, the pronunciation leaned far enough into this wh zone that they started being spelled W-H. But that was an aberration. Really, for the most part, they've always been pronounced. uh, Who and hop have been pronounced the same way. It's just in this subset of particularly literate English speakers, uh, the spelling changed, and everybody else adopted that spelling. Interesting. But you can imagine somebody saying, who are you? I probably completely peaked that. No, good. <laughs> I had to check my level there. I just blew directly into the microphone. Okay, let's move on. The next symbol we come to looks like an upside-down H. It's the voiced yeah. labial palatal approximate. So if we so do the same thing with labial palatal vowel, we're saying that it's lip-rounded, it's yes. close, and it's front. So that would be like the French U vowel. Um, the lowercase y in the IPA. And so here we are in an approximate place. So it is voiced. It's not voiceless. Um, And, uh, of course, because it's the consonant that goes with u, it's it's like h before that. So we might get this in a French word like huit. Huit. Now, there are some French speakers, particularly in Paris, who de-voice this initial h and say huit, uh, so that they have a voiceless one, even though there's no symbol for is, it. Is it a more fricative quality? 
it is a more fricative quality. Yeah. So, so if we needed to represent that, we would have to put a devoicing symbol and a raising symbol underneath it to say that it's an unvoiced fricative form of the voiced approximant e. E. Right. Uh, which is really hard to say on its own. <laughs> uh, because it really is the, the indication of a transition, just like w is. Uh, yeah. And you could really think of both of these as a vowel that happens very tightly and very quickly, as a sort of diphthong. So instead of using ah as the vowel to demonstrate it, I will use u. So it would be vu, uvu, and u. Which is almost hard to hear. It, it, it's so close to the vowel. But if we were to say ah, <laughs> I, I can't help but go on to the ah, yeah, <laughs> that's a big journey. And it ends up being what we described last time as, as a wide diphthong, covering a great deal of territory. And this is yes. very narrow when it happens. It's from the consonant, from the approximate, into a vowel that's pretty darn close. Right. I often think of these rounded front vowels as, you know, uh, the shape that your lips would make around a straw. Mm -hmm. So this is the shape you'd make around one of those really skinny cocktail straws. <laughs> exactly. Uh, terrific. Uh, let's go on uh, to the next one, which is on my chart here, the simultaneous and sh. Ah, okay. On the IPA actual chart, it's a uh, that's next door, not below, but that's we're, we're moving next okay. door. Simultaneous sh and. Ch. Uh, and that comes to us uh, ash from Sweden. Yeah, this is interesting. On my chart here, in brackets, it says existence disputed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that this is pretty well studied. Uh, it, it its existence as a phoneme might be disputed, uh, but its existence as an allophonic variation in some Swedish dialects, I think, is undisputed that the sound itself can be made and is made, uh, but there's a lot of variation. Uh, right. I believe that Eric Singer sent us a recording discussing this because he, he grew up listening to his Swedish mother uh, and he demonstrates it. So if that's true, uh, I will append it to the end of this recording. How about that? We'll Great go into plan. our transition music, but then go into a little coda and have transition music after that. Decision made. The So just to talk about what it is, though, it's yeah. sh and ch at the same time, so sh. Yes, and when, since I've, I've not only listened to it, uh, my wife has the Rosetta Stone Swedish, uh, so I'm always hearing her at the other side of the room making such sounds. And it sounds to me, when she makes it and when I hear it, more like So really, it's barely sh and barely The X symbol representing something that's more like a vigorous H, you could say, to use an English model. So we get Let me try it again. I have a hard time dialing in the amount of post-alveolar activity that I do. Mm. Uh, but I do find that the velar activity is really loose, really not very strong. So, okay. 
And it looks like, by the way, a terrific, it's a hook top hang. Uh, it's an H that has an ascender curving to the right and a descender curving to the left, which is supposed to bring to mind the ascending and descending of the sh symbol plastered on top of an H, I think. Right. Yes, I think that's right. I, I always think it looks like it's a person sort of scratching his own back while curling his leg underneath like a, <laughs> a, a, a flamingo. Yes. It's a beautiful symbol. Too bad I don't use it ever. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, so next on our uh, song sheets, um, uh, if we're going to continue downward, okay. we have a small capital H, which is called the voiceless epiglottal fricative. Which has been on the Wikipedia IPA chart put in its own column. Right. So uh, epiglottis, your epiglottis is the flap that covers your larynx when you swallow. So it's, I heard something about it the other day yeah. that I hadn't really thought about. And it, that it's made of cartilage. Mm -hmm. So it's about the same consistency as your ear. Yes. And I, I hadn't really put that together. I knew it was made of cartilage, but I had not put like the idea of touching what it would feel like. That it's about the same consistency as your ear. Yeah, quite a bit looser than I was imagining my epiglottis. I imagined mm. a very rigid... Stiff, yes. <laughs> but I think it actually has to flex a little bit as it goes into place. Well, that so helps that when sense. it has to do trills and so forth. Yes. So, epiglottic fricative. Yeah, now the difference between the, what we were doing is I wasn't doing the extra little pharyngeal constriction that you were doing, right. and I don't know if that's a meaningful variation because I don't really encounter this in any language that I know of. Yes, and, I think I may have been slipping into borderline trill. Right, where you have possible. to get that bracing going on to get the trill yeah. to happen. Yeah. I always, uh, when I'm teaching this and the students are alarmed, I, I always say, someday you might play Gloucester in King Lear and have to have your eyes gouged out, and you're going to want the back of this chart uh, yes. to, to protect your voice so that you can make all manner of brutal, gruesome, phlegmy things without really harming yourself. I do find that when I get people to explore these sounds, they often go to kind of a panic place because yeah. they're not used to a sensation of friction back there. And so they feel a little bit of discomfort or irritation. I must be hurting my voice. My voice lives there. Right. And to reassure them that their vocal cords are much lower down and that a little bit of buzz on a part of their mouth that's unfamiliar to buzziness isn't harmful. And it, I, I quite agree. I've had this experience as well and found that the students who move past that fear end up being able to isolate the muscular activity much better. So they're able to use only what's needed instead of... It's usually the people who are engaging everything right. and over-muscling that are tending to get freaked out when we do that part because they're familiar with that being the thing that happens before they lose their voice. Yeah. All right. Okay, m moving on, yes, we have the voiced epiglottal fricative. So this is the, the voiced pair of that noise we just made. Yeah. It's uh, 
harder symbol to describe. I always think it looks like the kind of thing that the uh, pharaoh carries. Yes, the um, ankh. Is that what? The, is it an ankh or some kind of modified scythe? Um, yes. If it was so, a bishop's hook, it would be a crozier. Hmm. Um, so it basically, it looks like a question mark without a dot and a crossbar. Yeah. Um, but it's this is backwards. This one exactly. Uh, so that that looks, uh, yeah, a little bit more like perhaps a C with a funny cedilla. It uh, is, cedilla. by the way, like the pharyngeal fricative, but with a bar. Like the pharyngeal fricative with a bar. So they're both fricatives near the back. Um, and it, this is just a little lower. This is interesting information about. Uh, the IPA chart on the Wikipedia page, they've placed both the pharyngeal fricative and the epiglottal fricative on the transition place between the approximant and the fricative row. Hmm. So that they're saying that when those are made, they're made with something closer to an approximate sound, the voiced form. Ah, ah, aha. Mm, I can't really... Aha, aha. I think uh-huh. I'm getting close to it, but uh, to be fricative, it needs to be ah-ha, uh-huh, ah-ha. Uh-huh. And I think what I'm being told by Wikipedia here is that it may be that in practice, languages that use it use something that's closer to an approximate. Right. Okay. So the next symbol is the opposite of that, the epiglottal plosive, and it looks more like a question mark without a dot, yes. but the bar. Uh, and and the right way around, facing open to the left. Yes. Uh, so, do you want to give it a try? Ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, I didn't do the initial one. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, I just know. I think I'm I'm co-articulating with the glottal stop. You see, I often think about what Dudley Knight thinks of what I'm doing. Uh, and I know that he's probably listening to this episode now because he is Hi, so good at isolating the epiglottal activity uh, that if you have the chance, if you meet Dudley on a street, uh, ask him to do an epiglottal fricative trill plosive. Show me your epiglottal plosive, (laughs) man. Exactly. But yes, it is a plosive that is lower than pharyngeal, not ah, but ah, ah, ah. And it's, you could hear those were different. Because yes. I'm not able to dial in the precise activity. And part One of those things where you want to put a little camera down your nose and to be watch sure, yeah. and figure it out. Well, next time I get scoped, which uh, ought to be next time I get my students in there, I'll try it. We'll see if I succeed. Great. So we have uh, really just uh, four things left on the other symbols section. And... Uh, so we're jumping back up to the top of this area, and we have these curly-tailed C and Z, or Z, where I come from. Um, and these are familiar to me as something that I encountered when I was working on Japanese. Hmm. Um, so and they're alveolo or alveolo palatal fricatives. Meaning, I always like to say alveolo, <laughs> even though it's wrong. <laughs> It sounds like a, a guy who's mobbed up. He's alveolo. Watch out for alveolo. Uh, so alveolo-palatal means it's simultaneous contact on the alveolar ridge and the palate. 
and the thing that's contacting is the tongue, the tip, and the blade, yeah? Well, if we think of an alveolar fricative, mm-hmm. what's happening is we've got a groove down the center, yeah. and the narrowing happens at the alveolar ridge. Yes, yes. So an alveolopalatal fricative extends that uh, narrowing mm-hmm. further back. So it's not just at the alveolar ridge, it's at the alveolar ridge and at the hard pass. Yes, so it's not only the contact is there, but the hole is, is in both places. The, the groove, if you will. Yeah. So I, I like to think of it as kind of a longer groove uh, close to the roof of my mouth, which means I have to get more of my tongue up mm-hmm. up closer. Whereas uh, I can make an alveolar fricative with just the front edge of my tongue. To make an alveolopalatal fricative, I need to get more of the body of my tongue up near the roof mm-hmm. of my mouth. Uh, usually that means I, I'm i going to close my mouth more. My tongue tip might stay down um, as I do that. So it, it a longer tube gives more room for uh, fricative turbulence to be made, mm-hmm. and that's going to lower the pitch. So you want to give us an example? So cha, a, sha, a, It also occurs in, in Irish, in the Irish language. Uh, so pochin is pot with a T there, then pochin. Pochin, pochin, yeah. So it, to many people, it often gets paired up with a T, and so you get this affricate kind of sound. So people think of it as a ch sound. Uh, it's very and, similar. Uh, yes, and I think it's also uh, a sound that comes up in Polish. I think that's right. Uh, and the voiced form is just the same thing with voicing in it. That's not quite right. I, that was too palatable. No, that sounds good. Good. You clearly practice this more than I do. Uh, and it's a, they're very pretty symbols. They have little curly tails. Little piggies of the yeah. farmyard <laughs> of IPA. Um, okay, we've got one last on its own, and that's the voiced alveolar lateral flap. And this is an, uh, like the voiced alveolar approximant, which is the upside-down R symbol. The voiced alveolar lateral flap is an upside-down R where the tail has been lengthened up mm-hmm. tall, sort of like a giraffe. So it's an uh, ascender, but not yes. a descender. Right. So if you imagine drawing a D, but you didn't actually draw the <laughs> whole bowl of the D, you just wrote the little underhook, uh, you would get the shape of a voiced alveolar. I've never thought of it like that. I learn something uh, new every time we do one of these. We do, don't we? So uh, it's, it's a lateral flap in that its flapping is to the side. Uh, it's alveolar in the sense that it's closed alveolarly. Dla, adla, adla. Yes. And I think a lot of people hear sort of a DL sound yeah. when you do it. Adla, adla. And you could, I mean, when you think about it, when you do lateral plosion, little, little, little. you're doing a lateral plosion. And yes. plosives and flaps and taps are very, very similar. Next door neighbors. So to get a flap, I often think of it as being intervocalic, that it's going in between. You can do yeah. dla and it, do it initially, 
but uh, flaps are easiest to explore yeah. intervocalically. Adla. Adla, adla, adla. It's interesting. I think that I have a tendency to do it more like lateral plosion, adla, to really emphasize it. But it is a flap. It's on the move. Adla, yes. adla. And if you, if you get a lot of people, when they do lateral plosion, introduce some fricative quality mm -hmm. so that they're getting a kind of sound, uh, you know, little, there's a little, little uh, aspiration happening there. Um, so we uh, don't want that on this. And this occurs in Japanese, doesn't it? Um, I, I don't know that it does, not off the top of my head. I, I, not having studied any Japanese, I took Wikipedia at face value. Mm. Uh, and I believe, I'll tell you what, let me hunt it down here. There it is on the chart, lateral flap. I'm going to follow that link. And it will probably have occurrence. Well, it does, oh, this is interesting. Oh. Ramen. 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 That uh, I would imagine that that is some kind of see, Japanese phonology. What does it say? Here, I'm going to play it. Oh, I played it through my own headphones, so uh, I, I'm not going to go to the trouble of inserting that. Everyone, go to Wikipedia. Don't yeah. make me edit. <laughs> <laughs> so it does sound like DL, Dlamen, Dlamen, but <clears throat> I don't speak Japanese, and I don't have a Japanese person to ask. I, that sounds different from what I expect to hear. I'm looking at the Japanese page, and mm -hmm. I'm trying to scan it very quickly to find it, and I'm not seeing it. Well, uh, uh, oftentimes when we <clears throat> look at the way phonology of a language is described, <clears throat> they use uh, a symbol that's close, or there's a variation uh, there's not always agreement. It's not like phonetics started first and languages followed afterwards. Uh, the principles of the IPA were used, and then each individual language describer used the IPA to try to describe their language. But the language and the way it's perceived is internal to the speakers of those languages. So it may be that there's something similar to a, a lateral flap, in the way the Japanese R sound is made. Okay, here's the bit from the Japanese phonology page Good. about R. Uh, and they use the post-alveolar flap symbol, which looks like a regular R with a hook tail to the right. Mm -hmm. It says uh, the post-alveolar flap is an apical post-alveolar flap undefined for laterality. That is, it is specified as neither central nor a lateral flap, but may vary between the two. It is similar to the Korean R. To an English speaker's ears, its pronunciation varies between a flapped D, as in American buddy, and a flapped L. And then they show the... Uh, Undefined for laterality. So yes. it, there might be a lateral component, but there's also a central component. It depends on context, probably. <coughs> Sounding most like D before in E and Yod, uh, most like L before O. And they uh, use the fish hook to transcribe it? Uh, the, they use the, f when it's more like D, they use the fish, yeah, the fish hook, what, the way it sounds to English speakers. 
but they're suggesting that the uh, the symbol that looks like a regular R, not a turned R, with a, a, a tail. Um, hmm. uh, mostly like a retracted flap before A. So ramen would be slightly retracted tap. It's occasionally realized as a trill, especially when conveying a vulgar nuance in speech. The phenomenon <laughs> is called rolled tongue, makizuta, in Japanese and is usually transcribed by repeating katakana, ru. So you get garr for a dog's growl. How fascinating. But we have gone deeply into the weeds, I feel. We have. We have. So we need to get back to our chart. Uh, so there's yes. really only one other thing in other symbols. And I think but it's a biggie. I think of it more as kind of like a diacritic. It talks yeah. about affricates and double articulations, which can be represented by two symbols joined by a tie bar if necessary. So tie bars aren't required, but they can be very helpful. Yes, and I... I they're done away with in the typefaces that we use on the computer by having the two symbols sort of merged, hooking together physically. So, And see sometimes a, just convention, you know, that ch and j are so common in English yeah. that you kind of learn to recognize that if you see t and esh next to one another, then surely they mean an African. I tend to, to ask my students to do the tie bar as a sort of reminder that there's something particular happening in that, that it isn't a sequence of two separate sounds, but a particular way of exploding into the fricative. But you're right. It's what else is it going to be? Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose if you described ratchet and rat shit, you'd be using two di different... You'd have to indicate how you they You might put different. a space in between them. You could yeah. put a period. I mean, there's other things one can do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, if you see those two together and it's a transcription of English and the whole transcription is not insanely narrow, you could probably guess that it's an affricate. Yes. So have we talked about affricates before? We have. We've done right, a whole good. episode on affricates. Forget about it. Forget about it. So we're zipping quickly now through the non-pulmonic. And we've kind of done this already, so we're mm -hmm. just going to whiz through them, I think. Great. Um, so there's three columns in the non-pulmonic chart. Excuse me. The clicks is first. And uh, shall we just trade off? So yeah. uh, we'll just demo them. So we'll start with the bilabial clicks. Ah, ah, ah. Nicely done. Dental clicks are on the back of the upper front teeth, so we get a kind of sound, which always sounds like chupsing to me, that kind of sound. I, what a, I have never really used that word. I've only seen it written. Oh, okay. Uh, so <laughs> something, uh, maybe I didn't even pronounce it wrong, but uh, when I say it to people who chups, they kind of go, yeah, they nod their head at me. Like, oh, <laughs> yes, you're using the right word. So, uh, and I, usually kind of quizzical, like, how do you know that? Word? <laughs> uh, so that sounds like uh, 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 sounds like you a added a nasal nasality. Component. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, now, if you were transcribing that, you would have. Would you put nasalization over that, or would you put a co-articulated plus mm? Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I'm plugging my nose, so I won't yes. nasalize. <laughs> 
Uh, so the next is post-alveolar. Now this one actually is tricky. Uh, I'm going to do it the way it's described. Ah, 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 ah. Uh, you could hear that I went different, I was either more forward or more back. But some people really do a much rounder sort of sound. Uh, and I'm not sure in... Which is sort of s sounds like it's smacking down onto the bottom of your mouth. Yeah. Sort of the clip-clop of hooves, I think of that as. And certainly as a paralinguistic sound, that's a sound that, you know, kids practice and play with. But does it occur that way in speech? No, no, no. That's a, a further investigation, I think. Okay, so the pal palato, palato, how would you say that? Palato alveolar? Uh, palato, I would say. Palato alveolar. I'm no authority. Uh, and that's the sound, is it not? Yeah, it's, so it's a, the dorsum of the tongue, but the, is the tip of your tongue also? I'm hearing quite a sharp smack there. It, it's really stuck to the roof of your mouth, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's much more of a pop kind of sound. Uh, Latifoged has some great uh, drawings of the tongue pulling down, creating this pocket of air right in the center of the tongue so that the... So when, when I make the rounder one, I feel like I'm opening my mouth, letting my tongue drop, and that's creating a vacuum that's released ingressively as the tip of my tongue flaps back. Yeah, I'm getting that with... Um, in the post-alveolar place, just off my... Uh, gum ridge, and uh, the suction action is pulling my tongue sort of down and back, but when it releases, it actually smacks down behind my lower front teeth. Well, I've, I've got a finger in my mouth and not touching the tip of my tongue to my finger. At, at ever? Ever. Wow. But also, I'm not doing it as vigorously and fantastically as you are. So maybe it's just that I have a... There's so many <laughs> things that I do vigorously and fantastically. Um, I knew it would come to this. All right. Let's move on. Yes, Alveolar please. lateral. And that's our, our uh, calling the horses in. Uh, right? Giddy up. And, and that's almost entirely unilateral, not bilateral. Yes. Many laterals go out both sides, but they don't have to, and alveolar lateral clicks tend to go one side or the other. I guess uh, I'll edit this down in such a way that it won't really be stereo, but if you do both, there's an, a, a terrific experience of hearing the sounds slightly different times. That's kind of weird. Uh, All right, so that's like our... squirrel making yeah. noises in the tree. So... Okay. We didn't say, by the way, that clicks are velaric. They're the velaric airstream mechanism, which means that the velar port is closed and the vacuum, the ingressive suction of air is happening by virtue of opening the space in the oral cavity, right? right? Yeah, we make like a suction inside the oral cavity and it pops open and uh, that release of air pressure 
is ultimately what causes the sound. I will also throw in something that I'm not going to try to demonstrate, which is that there's a whole set on this chart that I'm looking at on, on Wikipedia of nasal clicks, pharyngealized nasal clicks, uh, co-articulated bilabial click with uh, uvular plosive. There are a lot of crazy things there, crazy for me as an English speaker, right. uh, that are interesting, but if we tried to explain them, we'd be just treading water because I don't think either one of us use understands them Don't use them, well them in isolation. Enough. They use them as part of double articulations, and so you get combos that are very subtle to the non-native speaker, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know there are uh, tongue twisters from yeah. South Africa that the tour guides like to do that uh, full of a variety of clicks that you would never be able to distinguish. Yes, and that's a case where maybe our having learned a different language means that our brains are no longer plastic enough to really take on that new information. It's so very different. Uh, and so subtle. It's yeah. very, very rapid. And so to be able to distinguish these subtle, subtle, subtle colorings of sound, uh, it takes a lot of practice and uh, a desire to be able to communicate that yeah. we just don't have the need for. But part of the argument that I think you and I would both make for doing all of these sounds, we could argue that about the IPA chart quite a bit to say there's no need to do that sound. You're going to be speaking English. You're an, an English-speaking actor. You need to you learn only these sounds. And we obviously both feel that we need to experiment with things that are outside of our comfort zone because it increases awareness and articulatory agility and so forth. This is just the limit of our ability, I think. <laughs> uh, it's good to know where the limits are. Okay, so voiced implosives is the next call. Yes. So here we are making a sound where we're exploding the sound inward while vibration is going on. Um, so is it like a implosive or, or uh, ingressive voicing while this goes on, or is there exhalation, uh, outward, ec uh, egressive sounding going on? before and after? In, in Catford's book, uh, what is it? Practical Phonetics. I believe that's right. Introduction to Practical, to practical Phonetics. phonetics. Yep. He describes the column of air under the glottis as static and the motion of the larynx down as sort of enveloping or moving past. So it is egressive vibration because this the air is flowing in the outward direction through the glottis, but that's because the glottis is actually mm. moving downward. Right. So it's a, a bit like, I don't know if you've ever seen these YouTube videos of people holding a slinky up in the air, and they no. film it at slow motion, and then they release the slinky, and the two ends of the slinky both retract at the same time towards the center of mass. And because the ends move so quickly towards one another, the slinky essentially stays put. It hangs in the air while it contracts because it's falling at the same speed at which it's rising. And so it appears to defy gravity. Cool. Um, and so there's this kind of cool feeling in your throat that you're compressing and exhaling at the same time yeah. that creates this interesting 
voiced implosive noise. So you, you did this kind of beatboxing noise where you did that, which was a, was that a velar implosive that you were doing? Uh, I actually, where am I? Uh, I, I'm not releasing at the lips at all. I'm only doing the vocal component. So that would probably be perceived as a bilabial because you'd be yeah. doing uh, 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 right? Uh, exactly. So if I opened, but the ingressive plosion is happening at the lips. So I'd have to go, right. and almost immediately the sound of uh is coming out. Right. Uh, it's as you described the slinky. Uh, there's a flow of air into my oral cavity exploding from my lips. But at the same time, there's voicing coming up. Bah, 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 bah. Right. So we, we get vibration happening sort of on the inside that's trapped inside your yeah. oral cavity. Uh, so, so would you do the, can you do the trio of initial, medial, final? Is it possible yeah. to do final? Bah, ah, bah, ah. <laughs> that's hard. Sounds uh, like an adjective. Yeah. Uh, uh, as long as, because the voicing coming out of it is very much like a vowel. Right. Uh, uh, but it's possible. Yeah. So the dental, basically the same action with the closure on the gum ridge, on the alveolar yeah. ridge. So, uh, uh, the. Yes? The. Yes. Uh, the. Uh, the. Nice. Uh, and uh, the next one is, is a palatal. palatal. Uh, so that would be ga, aga, ag. That last one, I think you can imagine the way my face looked. Sometimes my students, uh, I think, get the answers to quizzes when I give them words by how weird my face is. <laughs> Ooh, that must have been uvular. He had an unsettled look on his face. So next is velar. So it looks like a G with a hook top. So we've got mm -hmm. uh, 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 uh. Nice. Uh, and then finally, uvular. And again, this looks like the u voiced uvular plosive, the small uppercase G, uh, but with a little quail hook on it. And that's uh, 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 uh. I, The first one was kind of velar, I thought. So mm -hmm. I had to adjust them back a little bit. Uh, uh. This and is the um, sound that the water cooler makes. Yeah. And you can sort of adjust it. You can change the position and change the pitch of that release because the acoustic effect of the length of the tube that you're releasing into creates the apparent pitch. Cool. Okay, one last column, four last examples to do. This is the ejective. They're represented by uh, consonant symbols followed by an apostrophe. Um, they're fairly easy to do. I, I do find the fricatives next to impossible, personally. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, there are always voiceless uh, plosives that we're looking at. So uh, the first three are easy because they're the three voiceless plosives from English. So mm -hmm. pa becomes uh, so you get the little pop on your lips because you're not breathing. It's just a little... Yeah, you're, and this is sometimes difficult for students to distinguish. They probably can do it, but they have a hard time distinguishing between when they're doing a pulmonic and when they're doing uh, an ejective uh, glottalic, uh, the plunger of their neck squeezing the sound out. Right, because it rises. You're, 
larynx exactly. noises. So just setting your fingers on your larynx will allow you to feel it jumping up there. But also, frankly, I can't imagine one of my students not being able to do a little bit of beatboxing. Right. Well, I, I have encountered older students who uh, were kind of stymied by the hmm. idea of ejectives, and they, they're constantly trying to put breath on it. So I say, hold your breath. I tell mm -hmm. them, to, you know, close, close your uh, vocal folds, and that should be able to get them to make the and noise. We, we talked about this when we talked about these plosives. Sometimes people use them as a way of emphasizing ta. Right. By and sometimes uh, on mic technique. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we have t -t or ah, ah, at, ah, at, ah. Right. Ah, at, ah. Groovy. Now there's an S as an alveolar fricative example. And, uh, and that's, a, that's just to show us that you could do anything ejectively. Any articulation you do in the oral cavity could be done ejectively. Now, I listened to the example of uh, uh, Peter Ladefoged doing it that accompanied his book, uh, Vowels and Consonants, and his alveolar fricative ejective sounds very much like he's kind of doing a double articulation TS. Yeah. It sounds more like than um, and ah. perhaps that helps to build up a little pressure for that release of sounds. Uh, I know that ah. I'm faking it because my ribs will move. I can have to really feel that if mm -hmm. I'm faking it and if I really do it in my throat, uh, there's no movement in my torso, of course. Apparently, in the Tlingit language, the word for Dungeness crab is Tsao. Tsao. Oh, sorry, I did that just like you described as an affricate. Tsao. 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 But, you know, you could do it with anything. You can't really do any voiced one. I can't do because there. I have to be closed. Exactly. Because there, the way you're motivating the sound, the airflow. And if they're vibrating, then they're not, then that air is coming from the lungs. Well, we've managed to pick up all the detritus lying around <laughs> on the, the chart. The only thing that we haven't really talked about on the chart now is this sort of this bottom third of the chart, uh, the area of diacritics and mm -hmm. the area of suprasegmentals. Um, so we still have um, some lexical sets to move through in yes. terms of diphthongs. Yeah, we have choice. Um, um, we have, uh, I th do we not have start still? Oh, well, we have a whole... Uh, All those ones that uh, center towards uh, schwa, north force. We did north and force, didn't we? Uh, you know, if we can't remember... <laughs> Surely our audience can. Is anybody still listening to this? Uh, they're hello, stuck hello, back. <laughs> anyone home? <laughs> uh, but it's terrific. And, and really, anybody who is listening and keeping up to date with us, if you have ideas about where we could go after this, uh, we're coming close to having completed everything. 
We are. It's amazing. So uh, we, we're open to talk about other ideas. You know, we could even do sort of a, a reading list, put out a suggestion of we're going to read this thing and then we'll discuss it. Mm. Um, you know, there was that thing that I spotted this week, Jeff Lindsay's mm -hmm. version of the vowel chart. We could chat about that. Lots of, I've lots of things. I've been restraining myself from talking to you about that during this podcast. So I hope we do get to that. Great. Well, thank you, Phil. And uh, hopefully listeners will get to another podcast in another couple of weeks if uh, life doesn't take us away from the mic too soon. Yes. Uh, so, so long, Phil. Adios. And here's that interview I promised earlier. It's actually Eric Singer speaking to his mother about these Swedish co-articulated sounds. Hi, Eric. Hi, Phil. This is Eric Singer here. I'm sitting down with my mother, Anne Singer, um, who has agreed to sit down and talk about a couple of sounds in Swedish with me. Can you say hi, Mom? Hello. Thanks for sitting down with us today. I'm very glad to do it. So... First, I think just as a little bit of background, uh, there are a lot of dialects in Swedish. Is that right, Mom? Yes. And But you speak something fairly close to what might be called standard Swedish? Yes. And, and with, with a little bit of a Gothenburg uh, inflection uh, that anybody would recognize, but it's not broad. So and would that be the main difference between uh, Gothenburg and Stockholm dialects would be just sort of inflection or melody? I think so, yes. I think uh, at, at least someone from Stockholm who speaks standard Swedish okay. would be uh, speaking very similar to me, but with a, with a different inflection. So the the two sounds that Eric and Phil were just talking about recently were uh, were the uh, the English sh and uh, I guess we might call them zh sounds sh and zh, and um, they talked a little bit about uh, the Swedish equivalent of the English sh sound. And I thought I knew something about it. We've just been talking, and I, I really didn't. But I think we've I think we've figured some interesting stuff out. Uh, there's a tongue twister um, that I uh, that you taught me when I was when I was younger. Would you do the tongue twister for us? Yes, uh, it's shu shu shuka shumen shöljer shatten ishan. So those are all the same sounds, but they're actually spelled in a couple of different ways, right? That's right. How, what are the different spellings in that tongue twister? Well, SJ is the, mo is the one m used in most of the words. There's STJ in one of the words, and SK in another of the words. And in each case, it's followed by an O with an umlaut? No, uh, O or A. O or A, okay. With, each time with an umlaut, yes. And uh, what does the tongue twister mean? It means seven seasick sailors rinse their bottoms in the lake. Which somehow seems very Swedish. Yes. Uh, and one more time, can you give it to us fast? Okay. So what's interesting about this is that I, I had always thought in, in sort of attempting to imitate this, I wasn't getting it quite right, but I was getting it close. I thought it was a retroflex. And it's sort of like that. There is some retroflexion to the tongue. What we've discovered in, in imitating it back and forth and really looking at what we're doing is that it's a very, very tight sound. The tongue tip is curling up and back, but the sides of the tongue are also curling up into kind of a channel. And the whole thing is very, very tight up towards the back of the alveolar ridge and even up maybe a little bit of palatal. And the other feature, it should be said, is very strong lip inrounding, which means the inner portions of the lips are flaring out, sort of like a trumpet. 
right? Yes, very good. Okay, really good. Getting it. So we're mm-hmm. so we're figuring out that sound. I have to say, in in our little bit of research, what's really interesting here is there's a very famous um, in in the world of phonetics. There's a very famous sound. Uh, it has its own symbol in the IPA, and apparently, it's only ever been found in Swedish. The name of the symbol is the hook top hang, uh, which sort of looks like an H with a, a, a hook over to the right at the top of the H and a hook over to the left at the bottom. Uh, on the right leg of the H. It's called a hooktop hang, and it's supposed to denote a voice. It's a co-articulation, which is a voiceless palatal velar fricative, uh, which apparently means shh, our straightforward post-alveolar English um, voiceless fricative sound, together with a voiceless velar fricative. So you do both of those together, and you get something like that according to the standard phonology, is what this sound in Swedish is supposed to be. Um, as in the word S-J-O-K is often used to illustrate it, which is which means chunk. And in your dialect of Swedish, you would pronounce that... Shuk. Shuk. So it's this sound that we're talking about, which, which I would call closer to a retroflex, voiceless retroflex fricative than anything else, although with some other characteristics to it. And that um, really is, you say, the standard Swedish sound for this yes. for this phoneme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you heard something like that other sound in other dialects of yes, Swedish? Yes, I, I hear it in the um, the southern, um, which we call Skåne, which is more like Danish. It's sort of like a hybrid between Swedish and Danish, and uh, they make that different sound, which, which is, I would say something like hook, hook, hook. Which is mostly just velar. What you're doing is is just when the back I'm doing, but I may yeah. not be doing it right. Right. But, yeah, but that's but, that's where I've heard that's where I've heard it. But according to both Wikipedia and the Journal of the IPA, or sort of the, the handbook of the International Phonetic Association, that <laughs> sound is an, yet another allophone, another realization of this sound in in some parts of Sweden. Apparently, even in immigrant communities, you get a uvular, a voiceless uvular fricative, which is. <laughs> Um, so you might have something like hook, hook, yeah. um, for some immigrant uh, Arabic-speaking communities. Now, very confusingly, this is not the end of the story, because there's yet another phoneme in Swedish, a really similar phoneme, uh, which in the literature is described as being this curly-tailed C that, that you guys were talking about, a voiceless alveolopalatal fricative. Uh, so something like... Uh, in the abstract, anyway, something like, um, and this this would appear in, in Swedish spelling KJ, as in the word KJOL, which means skirt, which would be pronounced shul, 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 shul. So we have a lot of lip rounding on this sound to us again, with that flaring out, that in rounding. Um, and this we've discovered is very much as described. The tongue tip is down. It's the body of the tongue approximating towards the alveolar ridge and the palate together. Um, so that, at least the literature, seems to be accurate on. So the interesting thing is we really do have these two similar but differently produced sounds. Um, I'm just going to read the uh, the Wikipedia section on this to, to sort of finish our discussion because it's very interesting what they say. They say the Swedish fricatives, these two different fricatives, are often considered to be the most difficult aspects of Swedish pronunciation for foreign students. 
the combination of two such similar and fairly unique sounds, as well as the large variety of partly overlapping allophones, often presents difficulties for non-natives in telling the two apart. Um, and they say specifically about the sh, sh sound. Is that all right? Sh. The sh sound. And it's alleged co-articulation, those two things going on at the same time, uh, that this is a difficult and complex issue debated amongst phoneticians. Though the acoustic properties of its allophones are fairly similar, the realizations can vary considerably according to geography, social status, age, gender, as well as social context, and are notoriously difficult to describe and transcribe accurately. So I don't know if we've shed any light on this whatsoever, but I feel like I know a little more than I did before. I certainly do. <laughs> Mom, would you just um, give us a, a little bit of a uh, little bit of connected Swedish, a poem, or uh, or just talk a little bit in your in your Jetteboy Swedish? Okay. Jag vet inte riktigt vad jag ska tala om, men det har varit väldigt intressant att undersöka dessa ljuden som jag inte visste någonting om. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's fun. Mm-hmm.